0: Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Wednesday afternoon, October 27, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, picking up the study of the ancient Assyrians in relation to the Kingdom of Judah. Okay, we start at Dr. Andrew's book, page 263, and the syllabus section 464. Does anybody want to raise questions about what goes before that? We'll start with 464, unless you want to bring up something from the previous part. Mr. Bailey. 464. 461. All right. What uh, Syrian king captured and conquered uh, and destroyed Samaria? Star the second and the date 722 or 721 BC. You realize when you see a date like this, 722 or 721, this doesn't mean that there's one year of uncertainty. This could be only one day apart. This is during the, the uh, winter season of that year, which, uh, just like you say, December 31st, 1971, and January 1st, 1972. This would be 71 72, but it might be only a day apart or just a little while. And um, the Siege of Samaria was begun by Shalmaneser, the fifth of that name. But he died before his victims died, and so he was replaced by the next king of that Syria, Sargon II, who was a very powerful king, and he completed the job and destroyed and it. He is the one who actually captured Samaria after three years' siege, which had been begun by the previous king, and the claim to have taken away 27,290 captives, and very likely this claim is true, but there's no real reason for questioning this. Now, anybody else got one before so we go on to 464? All right, so bring them up anytime you want. Judah and the heyday of that series. Sennacherib was the great poet the threatened the kingdom of Judah. He was the son of this man, Sargon. And there was a poem about him in the Bible 102 syllables. It is Dutchman Sennacherib by the British poet Byron. Now, that's literature, all right enough, and Byron was a great poet. Uh, his mouths were slightly less than puritanical and about his affairs with his assorted lady friend, Celeste of the better. But he was a poet. And also quite a man. Byron helped the Greeks in their struggle for independence from Turkey. And the Greeks had never forgotten it. I asked a large class once who Byron was. Nobody knew, but one Greek student in there knew. So you know who Byron was? Who? The Englishman is up the Greek back to see him. Oh, Geron! Yes, we know him. Geron! <laughs> <G>. <laughs> Sorry for not But uh, he wrote this poem. That Tyrion came down like a wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming and purple and gold, and so on. It's really quite stirring. I don't think Byron was uh, an evangelical Christian. Maybe he went to heaven, only God knows. But at any rate, that poem... Uh, captures the uh, dramatic scene of the, what happened to Sennacherib and his army as they were threatening to destroy the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is the Saul that's taking up Sennacherib. And what he did, 464, his reign in 704 to 681, You see about the turn of the century in there. And he made his capital at Nineveh. Now he didn't build Nineveh. Nineveh was a very old city. This was first mentioned in the Bible. anybody know where this was first mentioned? Yeah. Way back, Mister N. Ah, all right. It's get a question. Oh, all right. It's first mentioned. Just after the flood, Way back in Genesis, and the mention of Nimrod, Genesis chapter ten, verses eight to eleven. In the beginning, this is memory, the beginning of this kingdom was Babel and Erech and Accad and Kalna in the land of Shanar. Out of that land went forth Asher, It should be he went forth to Assyria and he built Nineveh and the city Rehobooth and Sela and Reathon. Between Nineveh and Sela, the same is a great city. All those places mentioned there are after Nineveh. There was Rehobooth and Sela and Reathon and so on. These places are suburbs of Nineveh, and the statement, the same as a great city refers to the whole complex, like we might say, Greater Pittsburgh, and Greater New York. And therefore, this way back, this is shortly after the flood, this uh, Nimrod, the first um, of the great dictators that have destroyed their fellow men and destroyed freedom, it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, he didn't hunt rabbits, he had a people. That's Nimrod. And um, Nineveh dates from that time. He was an empire builder and a a tyrant. But Nineveh had poked along for ages of time. And here we are, about the year 700 BC. Here's (coughs) Sennacherib, the son of Sargon. He rebuilt and fixed up Nineveh as his capital and called it. uh, capital of the Assyrian Empire it's on the bank of the Tigris River there is no city there today it's only ruins grass and little trash but on the other side of the river is the modern Iraqian uh, city of Mosul in Mosul just opposite, of it or many where it used to be now uh, 466 archaeology has thoroughly excavated this this is and excavated in the middle of the 1800s and to the latter part right of the 1800s. And one thing is shown is the immense wall that this man built around this city. It's about a city wall. Forty to fifty feet high. Figure how high that would be. Well, it's higher than old man, higher than this building, I believe. That's a Five-story house is about sixty feet high. You figure twelve feet to a story. This would be as high as a four-story house. That's a pretty a wall around the city. I don't think you're likely to skin over that just by, you know, trying to do some, some high jumps or anything like that. Um, two and a half miles along the edge of the river, and then eight miles uh, away from the river around the city in a, in a semicircle. So this was really something. And outside of this was a moat. See, they dug up the earth out of the moat and used this partly in constructing the wall. So then you have a double protection. Here's a, a moat which can be filled with water. Well, otherwise, it's just a deep ditch. And then the wall, besides that. Now, this was no good since helicopters were invented, but uh, in the days when uh, <clears> they <throat> didn't have any modern, modern stuff, a modern machinery, this would be a very massive and uh, dependable protection. And uh, these can be crates under his books called Mr. Mary. I think it
1: was like
0: this. See if it was the, uh, the published river. And there's one wall along here, and the same thing here, and then the wall comes around here, right there's one wall along the, rest of the river, and there's some variations the so of it to encircle how to set up as a kid. That's all. That can go a different way from what he said. Well, that that would make sense, wouldn't it? That'd be it. Yeah, Mr. Um,
1: Stone. Yeah,
0: there would be, this would be the important part where the um, King's Palace and main buildings and everything were. And these suburbs would sprawl out, you know, like Chippewa and Patterson Township and Darlington and. Right. and Valley and, and so forth, they'd be somewhere distant to away. But this would, this would cover the most important part. All right? Now, also, he built the world's most ancient known aqueduct to bring water. He's going to have a big city here. One thing you absolutely got to have is water. And he built this water from 30 miles away. Romans were the great aqueduct builders of ancient times, but not at this period, 700 BC. Rome wasn't even podunk yet. The 700, well, it's supposed to have been found in 753 BC, but it um, was podunk and still smoke, so with a small piece at this period, and only became important much later. One of the excavated in the middle 1800s, begun 1847 by an Englishman. Austin Henry Layard. Now, he was not um, really or originally a professional archaeologist. This man, I think, was um, a consul or an agent of the British government there, representing some commercial interests and so forth. But he had an interest in uh, what he saw and what could be discovered, and he undertook the the excavation of this. Pictures you can still see, the have them on a film clip I'll try to show you later. These tremendous and um, fave figures, the human-headed bull and the human-headed lion. They're so big that a, a modern man standing under this barely comes up to the end of the, the uh, beard of the human head of the, of the uh, animal. Uh, tremendous things. And uh, Layard discovered these, and his workmen were ignorant Iraqi Arabs who were very uh, ignorant and superstitious, and, and they uncovered one of these things. They said, it's Nimrod. And they wouldn't work any further. They scared their death to work any further. And even the Turkish governor, which was quite tricky at that time, sent a message to Layard and said, Sir, have they really discovered Nimrod or is it only his statue? <laughs> and finally he got there and quieted down and they proceeded further. And uh, they were going to have an awful time to get this onto a barge in the Tigris River. I believe it's in the British Museum in London today. But to get this, it, would, it weighed many, many tons, and it was so heavy, and they were afraid that um, it would slip and break to pieces of its own weight. And they got it with an elaborate down. an elaborate arrangement of ropes, with and tackles, and pulleys, and moved it inch by inch, very gingerly, and finally got it to the. And then they got it on a kind of a float with rollers, like uh, oh, thick the old, sick of a telegraph pole, maybe, and uh, this thing moved on these rollers, and took them out to harm them down themselves, and rolled it along on, on that very, conveyor dull idea. And finally they got it on a boat in the Tagus River without damage, two of them, and it was a major feat. And uh, how the ancient Assyrians moved these things, some of the pictures show, but uh, that's even more amazing. They didn't have the rock and tackles that Layard had. Well, this is Austin Henry Layard, a a good example of a diplomat or businessman who helped the cause of archaeology by doing it as a hobby. And it's quite a story written up. He had his problems with the Turkish government. They weren't always reasonable and so forth. But he contributed more than a good many professional archaeologists, partly just because of the... Coincidence of time and place. He was at the right place at the right time to be able to do this. Now, um, who was the king of Judah that had the this rest of Sennacherib? Mr. Everett Triath. You know, um, one of the few people in the Bible of whom almost nothing bad is said. He had one boner that he told He showed his royal treasures to the ambassadors from Babylon. This is the equivalent of escorting the delegation from Moscow through the inside of Fort Knox. <laughs> yes, he did. They had flattered him and buttered him up. It made him feel important. And then he said it to him. And the prophet Isaiah came around and said, "Who were those guys anyhow? Ambassadors from Babylon. What did they see? They said everything. I showed them the works. And Isaiah said, the day will come when all those things will be taken to Babylon. And they did, but not in Hezekiah's lifetime. Now, Hezekiah met force by faith. This is what takes courage. To meet overwhelming force, but you have no force to match, not really, by faith in God. And it worked. Judah was saved from being destroyed. Judah was destroyed, but Jerusalem was not destroyed by the Assyrians. Now, they captured Samaria after a three-year siege, and, of course, after that, the, uh, the people of the kingdom of Judah would be worried sick, because they, they would feel they were next on the program. The northern kingdom had swung, just like in World War II, after France surrendered to the Germans, the next thing was England. And the English were shaking in their shoes at the British because they knew very well they were next on Hitler's list for a country to conquer. And uh, it almost happened, but not quite. God has something to do with how this would turn up. And uh, so um, here the people of Judah were really almost in a panic with fear of this invasion. And they knew what kind of an enemy they had to deal with and how cruel and ruthless and, and almost fiendishly vindictive these people were. And Hezekiah is a good example of somebody who combined faith in God with doing what you can yourself. You know, Oliver Cromwell, a political figure in British history, is quoted as saying to his soldiers, trust in God and keep their powder dry. Now, neither of those is a substitute for the other Rightly you understood, know, understood They should work together. Trust in God and keep their powder dry. Hezekiah didn't have any gunpowder, but he had uh, some means of defense of his country. It was not really a match for the Assyrian Army, but he fixed it up for what it could. And some of the things he did, he started with a... Uh, far-going religious reform, got the country back on a right basis with God first. Notice, he didn't do this last, he did this first. Then um, he regained um, control of some territory and lost, the cities of the Philistines. He established a system of national defense with some army posts and forts, and stockpiled food and materials, because once the stage would set in, there'd be no way of getting any more food in. And finally, uh, a water supply. And this will take up in a little bit. This is one of the most interesting things, to my mind, in Old Testament archaeology. As it calls the reason of a water supply for Jerusalem at the time of the Assyrian crisis, it would be no mean engineering feat today with modern tools and equipment to do what he did. And he did it, uh, his men, was fixed and seven. Now, uh, 473, Merodach Baladan. This is a uh, Babylonian king. The Babylonian spelling of this name would be Marduk. Does that have any idolatrous connotations, Mrs. Johnson? <laughs> Yeah, the main god of Babylon, Marduk, and it's the same name, the consummate, the consonants of the same, only in Hebrew it's pronounced Merodach, and in Babylonian, Marduk, same god, same idol. Merodach, And He was king of Babylon and two different terms with the end of the queen, but what he did is important, not his date for what he did. At this time, Assyria is on top of everything, and poor Babylon is the underdog, which they didn't like. The power, you see, in the tigris euphrates Valley for ages had seesawed up and down. One time, Nineveh in the north is on top, and Babylon is underneath, and then some other time, it's just the other way. Now, at this time, Assyria, capital of Nineveh, is the champion, and nobody can resist them, and everything else in that whole part of the world is under them. So, Babylon, that has, had once been so proud and mighty, was at this time only a, um, an area, a district, or province of the Assyrian Empire. Naturally, they didn't like it. It was hard on their side as well as on their pocketbook. And then, so, they wanted to get free of this and shake the Assyrians off their neck if they could. And this, the Maribelic Baladan, worked up a. Um, I don't know what you'd call it, a confederacy or a conspiracy of small countries besides himself to try to fight the Assyrians and gain their freedom. And he sent ambassadors to uh, these various places like gymnastics and Judaism and other places to secretly line these countries up in this um, political and military conspiracy. Now, you can't walk in and say we came to announce a political conspiracy because that gives it away and that somebody will do something about it. So what they said on the record was they heard that Hezekiah had been sick and had recovered, and they came to congratulate him on his recovery from sickness. It was true enough he'd been sick and had recovered, and I don't doubt they congratulated him lavishly. This was, however almost certainly not the real purpose of this visit, which is a cover-up. The Bible doesn't say very much about this letter, but it is known from Babylonian sources and Assyrian sources. It does say this, however, that Hezekiah hearkened unto them. Therefore, he responded favorably to some proposal that they made. You don't say somebody hearkens to someone unless there's something to hearken about. And therefore, this is figured out between the lines in the Bible, but some real information from the Assyrians, this was a proposal for a military league against Assyria. Hezekiah hearkened unto them. In other words, he, he signed up. Now, this came to nothing. The Assyrians found out about it. They had a side system that was next thing to the CIA. And they found out about this and lifted in the Bible and it came to nothing. The it could be carried out into practice. Meanwhile, Hezekiah had shown his treasures, both of himself and of his kingdom, to the ambassadors from Babylon, and this is what Isaiah the prophet told him was a foolish thing to do. Now, there's a chronological tangle that I think we'll just skip, this class about the Assyrian invasion of Judah, which is so complicated, even the experts can't agree on it. And they can't even agree whether there was one invasion of Judah or two. And it's uh, com- complicated by uh, the dates that are given. It says in Second Kings 18, it was in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign. This involved problems unless you hold that uh, they made two trips. So let's leave that out and just go on from there. Anyhow, it was around... Uh, return of the century, somewhere around 701 B.C. Now this we have two sources of knowledge for, the Assyrian invasion of Judah. First we have the Bible, and then we have the Assyrian records. The so himself wrote them up. And in the Bible, furthermore, we have this record three times. It's in Kings, it's in Chronicles, and it's in the book of Isaiah, between the so-called first and second part of Isaiah. See, the second part of Isaiah is held by higher critics, chapter 40 to 66. And Isaiah up to chapter 35 is prophecy supposed to have been written by the first Isaiah. You understand, I only believe in one Isaiah, so really, I'm just telling you how this is held by some people. And then 36, 37, 38, 39 are historical material about the Assyrian crisis. Parallel to the account in Kings and Chronicles, but not exactly identical with it, it provides some information that they don't provide and vice versa. So we have three sources in Scripture for this, plus the Assyrian account. So here we have something really uh, abundant. Uh, Hezekiah's record has been discovered, I mean, Nicodemus' record has been discovered. Now, the Assyrian record is on a large, clay prism. And this, uh, and you should pass around in Weinman's book here, Wesman's book, I think, 60. Yeah. I sat around and took a look at it. This is the naturalist prism. I then you tell how big it is clay prism. And uh, baked, I believe. There are two of these. And one of them is in the British Museum, I believe, and the other one is in the Field Museum in Chicago. And I used to think that the one in Chicago was a modern-made replica or duplicate, a cast of this. And uh, one later, I was mistaken, there are two originals that have been discovered, and they're identical uh, word for word, except a little bit at the very end, it's different. And uh, Chicago's got one of them, and uh, British Museum, is it bit a little bit. British Museum, I think, has got the other one. And um, so um, there are two, one in London and one in Chicago. And um, this um, records the Nacrood campaign, not only against Judah, but um, the general history of his military uh, accomplishments. However, obviously somewhat slanted. It's been translated. You can get a translation of the whole thing. It's obviously been you know, somewhat planted to um, make his exploits seem more favorable to him than they really were, It's the part of the course the ancient people used to do that. Uh, conscience was the least of their trouble. And so, uh you ever hear what an American Indian said about conscience? And I they asked this Indian, you know what conscience is? Yeah, I know what conscience is. It's the first point of view on inside your chest. It turns over and over and over and hits every time it turns. But he just does not enough time to get smoothed off and quit hurting.
1: <laughs>
0: well, uh, conscience didn't bother somebody like the He belonged to a breed of people that had their conscience pretty well smoothed off by the time he was in public life. And, um, on this thing, well, let's see, I think we have a, 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 translation of some of this in your book, but I'll leave some from Thomas' book here. simply uh another <clears throat> picture of the same thing because he haven't given in walk. Well, uh he claimed uh, no, yeah here it is. This is the part about Hezekiah and Judah. Now this is translated from Assyria and this is Nazareth speaking. Just so take note of what a humble minded man he really was now in the idiot. As for Hezekiah the Jew, who did not bow in submission to my yoke, forty-six of his strong-walled towns and innumerable small villages in their neighborhood I besieged and conquered by stamping down earth ramps, and then by bringing up battering rams by the assault of foot soldiers by breaches, tunneling, and stopper operations. And made to come out from them 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, innumerable horses, mules, donkeys, camels, large and small cattle, and counted them as the spoils of war. 200,150 if uh, this figure is true, it shows that Jerusalem was stand-packed with refugees when this siege happened. The population of it wouldn't have been nearly that great in time in normal town. Um, Hezekiah himself had set up like a stage bird within Jerusalem, his royal city. I put watch posts strictly around it and turned back to his disaster any who went out of its city gates. His towns which I had despoiled, I cut off from his land, giving them to Matini, king of Ashdod, Paddy, king of Ekron, Philabel, king of, of Gaza, and so his land. Moreover, I fixed upon him an increase in the amount given as presents for my lordship, in addition to the former tribute to be given annually. As for Hezekiah, the awful thunder of my lordship overwhelmed him and the irregular and regular troops which he brought out, that brought of Prince in Jerusalem, his royal city, and had obtained for his protection, together with 30 talents of gold, 300 talents of silver, precious stones, antimony large blocks of red stone, ivory inlaid couches, ivory armchairs, elephant hide, elephant tusks, ebony wood, boxwood, all kinds of valuable treasures, as well as his daughters, Concubines, male and female musicians, he sent me letters to members of my lord city. say. He sent a personal messenger to deliver the tribute and made a slavish obeisance. And that's the for you. Be glad he isn't invading our country. Um, he claimed then all this uh, stuff. There's one thing in here that shows a distinct um, that's about Jerusalem. He says himself, and he himself, I shut up like a saved bird within Jerusalem's royal city. Now that is what we commonly call sour grapes. A student that comes to me and says, What did I get on the test? And I said, "See what? Just what I wanted. I didn't want an egg. That's uh, sour grapes. From Aesop's table about the fox that couldn't reach the grapes. After jumping and jumping, he couldn't reach them. So he finally says, Who wants those grapes? They're sour. Uh, You can be sure if Sennacherib had uh, really captured Hezekiah, he would have boasted about it. And this is a failure, therefore. He did not capture him. The Lord said this to Isaiah the prophet. The Assyrian will not get into this city. He will not dig a ditch around it. He will not shoot an arrow into it. He will go back by the way that he came. And I will save this city for my name's sake. And this all came true. And he did not capture Jerusalem and certainly did not capture Hezekiah. I'm sure he would have enjoyed skinning him alive, but it wasn't in his power to do it. God protected his city and his king. So, in writing it up, he won't touch him saying, I tried to catch him, but failed. No, but I set him up like a bird in a cage. Somebody said Hezekiah was doing all right in that bird cage. And uh, and Napster didn't succeed in getting him out of there. Now there's a claim here about the tribute. It says um, thirty talents of gold and eight hundred talents of silver. This is um, in Sennacherib's account. This one here says thirty and three hundred, but um, this is usually translated thirty and eight hundred. And in Second uh, Kings eighteen, it says thirty of gold and three hundred of silver. So there's a discrepancy there. Now in the first place, how much is a talent? We seldom use this word literally anymore. Thought by talent for dramatics or something like that. But how much is a talent in weight? Well, a talent, I get this out of Manley's New Bible Handbook. A talent uh, in the Old Testament, the New Testament talent was different. A talent was uh, 3,000 shekels. This is 3,000 half ounces or 1,500 ounces. Now, there's 16 ounces to a pound, so this would be, uh, let's say, uh, something less than 100 pounds to a talent, maybe about 80 to 90 pounds weight of silver to a talent. It's a a good amount if you multiply that by 800 or by 300. Now, as to this discrepancy, there are three possibilities. I'll explain this. If Sennacherib said 800 and the Bible says 300, obviously, those are different. And one explanation is Sennacherib told a whopper here. He told a lie. Uh, this again wouldn't bother him. However, it's not necessary to suppose that he told an untruth. Another possibility is that he counted the value of some of these other things endlessly, weight of the silver, to make up the 800. And still another is that. Um, It's a different kind of talent from the kind that the Jews used in Jerusalem. So there are various possibilities about this. Now, uh, what happened to Sennacherib in the end? 482. 481, we already dealt with. 482. What happened to this fellow in the end, Mr. Johnson? Killed by his sons, you know... Well, we got the Bible 101, sold syllables commercially printed now, but before this, it used to be mimeographed on the college here. And here it said in there, the uh, was killed by his kin, SINF. <laughs> this might be true too, if you understand it rightly. But actually, he was assassinated by his son, which speaks volumes. The people who should have loved him the most hated him the worst. And here he was, back from Judah, down on his knees in front of his idol in the temple of Mithrak his idol, facing the inside of the temple, of course, and two of his sons come from the rear and stab him to death. It not nice, but they did it. And they escaped into the wild and woolly north of Assyria today called Armenia, or eastern Turkey. And a third son set himself up to be the next king, 631 B.C. Now, um, 483, From what source besides the Bible do we know about the manner of the death of Sennacherib? This is in the Bible, see, about his son killing him. even gives a name. This is also found on two inscriptions found near Nineveh in the Assyrian language. 44. What light has archaeology shed on the Syrian and Mesopotamian towns mentioned by Sennacherib in his messages to Jerusalem as having been conquered by the Assyrian forces? This is in English, book 270 271. When the Assyrians were threatening Jerusalem, they said, There's no use for you people to trust in God. Look, what country is there under the whole heaven where their God's saved them from the army of the Assyrians. What country is it where their gods saved them from being conquered by the Assyrian army? Then they mention a whole list of countries. six or eight of them in there. Where are the gods of those countries? Did they do them any good? What makes you people think your gods any different from that are going to do you any good? This was their pitch or their line. Hezekiah's men with um, tremendous self-control obeyed his command to not answer them. So they kept their cool and at these fellows broadcast without getting any answer back. And maybe that's the best way to answer somebody that talks like that. Just just Let them blow, they get through blowing, and let it go. But, uh, of course, the Lord is not like the idols of those countries. The Assyrians figured religion is religion. They also said, Don't let Hezekiah fool you into trusting in God because your king is anti-religious. He has destroyed temples. The Assyrians had a secret service and spy system, and they knew this. Hezekiah had destroyed temples. But you see, the Assyrians are pagans. They don't distinguish between the temples of the heathen gods and the temples of the true god. A temple is a temple, and a god is a god, and religion is religion. You can um, drive your car with Salt 66 to Atlantic or Estrella, and it doesn't make a bit of difference. It moves your car. And um, so this is the way the Assyrians work. And these towns or countries that are mentioned here, capitals of countries, were formerly unknown except for the references to them in the Bible there. But archaeology has discovered, I think, every one of these. They are known, what they were, where they were, and where located. So this is a place where something has been really cleared up. Now, uh, paleography. What is the meaning of this word, paleography? Mr. Betty, are you a paleographer? Uh, well, any anyway, language, hand, ancient style of handwriting. Does the style of handwriting change? Now yeah, you go to a museum and see. Well, you can see the original of the Declaration of Independence. It's called, in fact, somewhere of it in, in books on American history, handwritten. You go to the Capitol building in Washington, and you can see it there under glass. You can't touch it under thick glass, but. Handwritten. You can read it with a little difficulty, but certainly nobody writes that way today, and you'd have a hard time to learn to write that way today. So this changes from century to century in any language or any script of writing. The study of ancient handwriting. Now, the reign of Hezekiah is important for the study of ancient Hebrew paleography or style of writing. Because of one discovery, what is it? Mr. Johnson, what's the discovery? Yeah, the Skylone Tunnel. And this is the really interesting part of it. And maybe we've got 11 minutes left to, to deal with this here. Now, this is from Hezekiah's time, and it's one of the very few source materials for early writing in Hebrew. You see, we have the Bible books from Genesis on down, but these are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Of copies. Who knows how many times? We don't have the original, only copies. They're good, accurate copies, no doubt, but still they're copies. Here's this inscription in stone. This is the original. What we have is what somebody chiseled in that stone. And uh, this was um, part of his effort to provide a water supply for Jerusalem. Now, uh, Jerusalem is um, 2,500 feet above sea level, And there are no sources of water beyond rainfall uh, in the city. And Jerusalem has always been short of water and is today. They have to get water from far away to have enough. And in Bible times, there were two sources of water. One was the Gihon Spring, later called the Fountain of the Virgin. This was on the east side of the city, below the temple area, between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, Gihon Spring. And the other one was Enrogel, the south of the old city of Jerusalem, outside the wall, a smaller source of water. This Gihon Spring, a moderate but unfailing source of water, never known to run dry, always done with some water. And this had, there were three different stages of bringing this water into the city of Jerusalem, which Dr. Unger described, and I'll have a little tutor here. The first was the very ancient one of the Jebusites. We already had about that before. They brought this in by a small shaft to a point that could be reached by a sloping incline from inside the wall, of there it was sitting. This was um, the first. The second may have been also done by the Jebusites, or it is possibly was done in the time of David and Solomon. This brought the water from the Gihon Spring by a surface canal around the east and south end of the city and in at the south end to the pool of Siloam where Jesus healed a blind man. Pool of Siloam. And uh, there the water was impounded. It ran day and night, of course, so this pool would accumulate water. People would dip it out in the daytime, but it would soon fill up again from constantly running in. This uh, surface canal brought a good amount of water to the pool of Siloam, but what's the matter with the surface canal in time of war? What could the enemy do to that, Mr. Block it off. It all takes just a moderate amount of digging on the outside to divert it completely and the pool of Siloam would soon be dry and the water supply would be gone and the city would be helpless without water. You can't live very long without water. So this was not satisfactory except in, uh, let's say, reliable peacetime. Now, the Hezekiah produced the third, and this was the Siloam Tunnel, which was chopped out of the solid rock under the cliff on the east side of the city. It was discovered in, um, let's see, the date when it was discovered in 1880, a little boy waiting in the pool of Siloam. He saw some rocks there with uh, weeds growing over them and a black spot that looked like a hole and got in. And here was the exit of the tunnel that came from the Gihon Spring. It was partly blocked by rocks but the water was getting through and he got in there and uh, found this inscription on the wall just a little bit inside of the mouth of the tunnel. And this tunnel uh, well, let us see. You'll find this in that same book page 61 and 62. 61 is uh, the tunnel and 62 is the rag on the other side. It doesn't look like much, looks like chicken tracks, but the colors are red. I got one in the rear, right? I didn't have right. uh, That tunnel, I couldn't walk through it without ducking a good bit of a time, but maybe some of you said uh, it's uh, not tall enough for a tall man, but uh, you could get through it. And the water flows in a little brook at the bottom of the tunnel. This is an amazing feat because it was done entirely by hand labor around 700 or 701 B.C. And um, it has been measured. Incidentally, that inscription tells the length of the tunnel in cubits. So the tunnel's still there, and it hasn't changed its length, and all he had to do was take a measuring line and measure the length of that tunnel, and it turns out to be 1,777 feet, 1,777. And the little arithmetic gives you, then, a check on the length of a cubit, which turns out to be 18 and a fraction an inches. So here we have a real uh, objective check on how long a cubit. A cubit was supposed to be the distance from a man's elbow to the end of his middle finger. Well, obviously, this is not exactly standard, because so people's arms are a different length. That's the cubit. But the pylon uh, tunnel shows that it was a trifle over a fraction of an inch over 18 inches. Now this was proof, and this replaced all previous ways of getting the water in. Now, outside there, where this thing started from, Hezekiah got that all covered with rocks, and I suppose he put sod on it, like we got very quickly over the uh, frontage of the dining hall over there. Looks like it had been going there for years, one day after they planted it. And this was completely camouflaged, so anybody walking around out there, he wouldn't have any idea that Jerusalem's main water supply started from here. Unless some critter was telling. It was, it was completely camouflaged over and no doubt planted to grass and weeds. And then this water came underground and through this deep tunnel. The, uh, the um, tunnel was, um, the rock was, uh, I believe it said, 100 cubits above the heads of the workers, the thickness of the rock, so to get clear to the top of the cliff. And they started this from both ends. This inscription tells six lines found in the rock wall at the edge of the tunnel. They started it from both ends, expecting to meet in the middle. And they had difficulty meeting. They didn't have any modern surveying instruments, of course. And so they zigzagged a little bit underground there and uh, were going to miss and not meet. And finally, however, one party of diggers heard the noise of the picks of the other party. So they knew they were near. And uh, a few more hours digging cracks developed and they could hear voices, and then it was only a little while till they broke of through and the water flowed, clear the whole length to the pool of Siloam inside the wall. Now, uh, this was discovered by this lad, just a local person uh, playing around waiting in the water, but he told people, and um, scholars immediately got in there, one man uh, sat in the mud for hours there. Uh, making a careful copy of this inscription six lines of it it is believed that it was once more but the, the lowest lines have been underwater and, and we eroded the away or well, and that way six lines left and it tells the story of the construction of the tunnel and how they went from the two ends and met in the middle and, uh, and the length of it in cubits and uh, that inscription isn't there anymore does anybody know what happened to it? Well, this was under Turkey. This was part of the Ottoman Empire, see, which held Turkey until, um, during World War I, the British captured from the Turks. So it was under Turkey, and the Turkish government, next to this inscription, from Jerusalem, cut it out of the rock wall, bodily as a whole, and took it to Istanbul, formerly known as Constantinople. Istanbul, if you're a student of Greek, that's ais tain into the city, corrupted by the church into Istanbul. Um, how many of you study Greek? Practically oh, everybody. Yes no. All right. Istanbul is the is, uh, eighth cane poland, un- into the city. But that's where it is now in the National Museum of Churches in Istanbul. Now, this inscription is important because this is our only sample of Hebrew writing as it actually was written and not copied, you see, just the original. And it's, it's in Hebrew language of the day, but in Canaanite or Phoenician characters. They don't look a bit like um, Hebrew characters that you would see uh, in a in a modern Hebrew book. The Hebrew was written in different forms of the Semitic alphabet, and this is the Canaanite script. I said it looked like chicken crust. It still does, the bird script.